Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. The Biden administration is rewriting the terms and the tone of U.S. relations with the People's Republic of China under Xi Jinping. The short summary of the breakup might be irreconcilable differences. We're uncoupling after 50 years of frustrated engagement. Secretary of State Antony Blinken delivered the message with the formality of a reigning power cautioning a restless rival. Where the U.S. cannot control China's behavior, Blinken said, we will shape the world that China operates in. We will reboot our own economy and we'll tune up a global network of allies to challenge and counter China's rise. The message has been read as a strategy to contain or constrain China, though those C words were not in the Blinken speech. Neither was the word cooperation, which had a 50-year run alongside competition in the modern U.S.-China discourse. Our guests bring three critical angles of observation. One was prime minister in Australia, another a China watcher at the CIA. We begin with David Kang, who teaches all about Asia at the University of Southern California. David Kang, we're still trying to grasp this Biden reset with China. The new tone between the United States and China, both ways, is sort of no more Mr. Nice Guy. But it's so unclear what's ahead. People talk about winning the 21st century. How do you see it? And where are we going? Well, I'm not sure that Biden has exactly any kind of actual new tone or reset, certainly compared to Trump or even the sort of tail end of the Obama administration. As you said, it has been increasingly a consensus in D.C. that we've tried to be nice to China, time to get tough. Consensus. Let me just check you right there. Are we talking the yeah. deep state? Are we talking the intelligence agencies? Are we talking the military? All of them? Are we talking about... The blob. I was going to say. <laughs> and what I mean by that is just sort of, this is not a Republican policymaking side or a Democratic side. They might have slight differences in emphasis here or there, but left and right across the policymaking establishment in Washington... Uh, is an agreement that the U.S. needs to be the indispensable leader, the hegemon, uh, and that China has challenged, is increasingly challenging that, that China wants to replace the United States, and the only way to handle it is by pushing back hard on China. And so that's why I'm not necessarily convinced that Biden's doing anything different than Trump is. Decode that in your own head. What does that say? Where are we going? For lots of us, we hear rumors of war trade war or something worse. But what do you hear? Take it apart. So a couple things. I mean, the first one is there was for a couple decades, a longstanding, again, sort of bipartisan consensus that we would try and engage China where we could and draw them out into the larger world, so to speak, and then push back where we had to. By now, it seems that sort of attempts to engage or meet with China are increasingly being abandoned. Uh, even on things like pandemics, our use of COVID vaccines is competitive. We're going to give more vaccines to third countries than China is. Uh, mm. It's not a cooperated attempt to handle the pandemic. It's competitive. Uh, climate change is the one thing where obviously the U.S. and China need to figure out what we're doing. 
And it's the sort of one tiny area in which there's some possibility of cooperation. But the rest of it, economics, trade, investment, diplomacy, all now is viewed as a competitive lens, not as a manageable or cooperative lens. The word cooperation didn't appear in Blinken's speech about the new policy. No, it did not. It was about, uh, you know, invest in ourselves, align with people we have to and countries that we that we have to and uh, begin getting ready to compete with China. And so in many ways, I don't see anything new. What I particularly don't see new about Biden is that with great fanfare just a couple weeks ago, uh, the administration released a two-year-long study with the, their new Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, IPEF. <laughs> Fittingly, it was, it was 12 short paragraphs, not a single specific proposal in any of it. In fact, I think the most uh, hilarious line was, was something like beginning, we, we announced that we are beginning to hold cons- consultations about negotiations. This isn't even anywhere near doing anything. But it is intended to somehow counter China. Whereas what China has been doing is there are actual economic institutions in the region right now that are being negotiated and going into, into uh, uh, implementation. The biggest one, of course, is the uh, – it's called CPTPP, the Comprehensive Partnership for T- Trans-Pacific Partnership, whatever it's called. The point is the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the U.S. was involved until Trump pulled out. Biden has no intention of rejoining. China has applied to join. That went into operation about a year ago with about 13 different countries in Asia trying to increase their economic relations. There's another one called the RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. It's the only multilateral economic institution in which Japan, Korea, and China are all members. And the U.S. Has, is not a member of this. So the region is moving forward with actual uh, negotiations but the Biden administration is not joining them. And when it comes up with its big alternative, there is literally no specific proposal. I think this is a fundamentally flawed approach to American policy towards the region. The flaw being? We are going to have to set everything up and we need to be running it. And if we're not running it, we're not even gonna be a part of it, such as RCEP or TPP or anything else. Let's talk about that central word, align, in the Biden agenda. That means the quad Japan, India, Australia, and the United States. It means by implication a sort of NATO for the Pacific. Relations with individual states out there to help contain China, watch China. It's a time also when we're thinking hard about what NATO does. But what about this idea of NATO in the Pacific? Well, that's never going to happen. The Quad is aspirational at best. Again, there's nothing actually there. These countries get together. And India is one of the key members of the Quad. We really want India, India to be a part of the Quad because it is this idea of a bunch of democracies standing up for themselves. But, of course, India blatantly refuses to go along with what the U.S. wants. So we are now in the odd position of Biden administration actually threatening India with sanctions because they won't get involved in sanctions on Russia. And India has made very clear they are not going to follow the American or the Western approach to Russia. And so the Quad is sort of Quad in name only. And we keep saying, well, forget about that. We need to worry about China. China is what you really need to worry about. Uh, but India continues to do trade with China and everything else, right? So, so the Quad, the way that it is presented in D.C. is a you know, lockstep, arm-in-arm democracy standing up for what's going on. But the reality is it's very hard to get them to agree to do anything 
other than talking generalities about things like COVID or, or climate change. What do the Asian nations, like Japan, like Indonesia, what do they need with respect to China, and what do they want from us? The point that I continually try and make is that the idea of a NATO or a Quad or a implicit containment coalition against China, although we may not use that word, uh, is that all these countries are going to agree on who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, and they're going to line up very clearly and follow the U.S. lead and try and increasingly decouple or distance themselves from China. That's the idea behind all these things. The countries that you just mentioned don't at all view China the same way that uh, we think in the United States, we think they should. Australia comes close to what the United States is. They have taken a very sort of hard turn towards uh, China. The Australian, well, there's a, new, there's a new government and it'll be interesting to see how the new Australian government approaches. But certainly the, the outgoing one had taken a much harder line towards China. But Indonesia does not. Hmm. Indonesia is not uh, joining these, eagerly joining containment coalitions. Japan is increasing some defense spending, but at such a low rate, it, this is hardly a Cold War, us against them, lining up of countries. The Philippines? If you go through all the countries, you can point out some which are a little more close to the United States, but almost none in which we have clear evidence of a choice with the United States against China and a willingness to risk economic and diplomatic relations with a country they have to live with. Hmm. And one of the things we forget is all these countries are around the region. They're not moving away. They have to interact with and live with China somehow. So, for example, you brought up the Philippines. They have a new president. Uh, interestingly enough, he's the uh, part of the Marcos family, the infamous Marcos, Marcos dictatorship, but he won the election. Almost no one has any idea what his foreign policy will be. But it is pretty clear that he, he has benefited from Chinese economic relations, his town has, and we don't know. He certainly has not campaigned on a, I'm back to being close to the United States. So we'll see what happens with the Philippines. Vietnam is another example. Vietnam is a country that has to live with China, has some territory, maritime territory disputes, but also has made very clear that they are not eagerly going to embrace the United States. Every time a U.S. warship docks in Vietnam, it's ballyhooed as a, as a you know, flip towards the United States. Mm. But right before Vice President Harris's visit to Vietnam last year, the day before, the Vietnamese prime minister met with the Chinese ambassador and said, Vietnam will never take any sides. We're going to be flexible like Vietnamese bamboo. To me, I read that as a reassurance signal to China that they weren't going to choose the U.S. and a warning sign to the United States that they were not going to choose the United States. So I think the reality of the region is very different than the way we, we think it should be in the United States. What lessons are you drawing in this rather worrisome spring of 2022 from Ukraine and NATO? What are you learning about analogies to the East. One of the one of the biggest lessons that I've said over the last couple of months since the Ukraine-Russia war is that there aren't a lot of lessons for East Asia. The amount of speculation about what China would, the lessons China would take about whether to invade Taiwan or not based on how Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, right? They're all over the place. But I don't think that's why China is, uh, China's not invading Taiwan because it looked and drew some lessons about how hard it was from Ukraine. 
It's not invading Taiwan because Taiwan has not declared formal independence. China has made very clear under what conditions it will invade uh, and use force against Taiwan. And that's if Taiwan declares formal independence. And the Taiwanese show no evidence that they plan to try and declare independence. If there is going to be violence between China and Taiwan, it's going to arise because of what happens in Taiwan, not because of any lesson that China learns about what happened in Ukraine. Coming up, the Australian politician who got to know Xi Jinping as a younger man and what he really wants. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Lydon. This is Open Source. Our guest, Kevin Rudd, is a China commentator like none other. You've had your own political career, Kevin Rudd, been prime minister of Australia. You were studying Chinese history as a teenager, and you learned to speak Mandarin fluently. You've written a comprehensive analysis of this 2022 moment in a wonderful book titled The Avoidable War. Deeper than all, perhaps, you got used to hanging out with Xi Jinping on the way up. Frank talk late at night, and you came to feel you know the man better than anyone I know. What can you share about a personal mystery to most of the world? Well, it is difficult to know Chinese leaders because uh, the only way, in fact, to um, pursue a successful career in domestic Chinese politics is to remain enigmatic. It doesn't play to lay all your cards on the table. That way, people are going to become your enemies much earlier. So with Xi Jinping, frankly, you get glimpses rather than a comprehensive view. What have I deduced from my exchanges with him over the years? One, to state the bleeding obvious, politically ambitious. Two, sees himself as a man of history. That is, not just your average political Joe, not just your average political leader, but someone who's in the business in their own mind of making a fundamental change in the way in which things are. Hmm. And that, I think, is of real consequence to the way in which the United States and its allies reacts to Xi Jinping's leadership. Thirdly, as a political leader, what I found from our discussions with him, particularly our informal chats in Chinese, was that he's deeply steeped in uh, a knowledge of his own country's history, of his own party's history, and with a reasonable familiarity with world history. Um, he doesn't speak English, uh, but there is a um, wide degree of reading. He's therefore, in my judgment, more historically literate about his own country and about the rest of the world than many of his predecessors. And finally, there's a razor-sharp political intelligence to the man, which you soon deduce uh, when you're um, in long conversation with him. Sent his daughter to Harvard, too. I mean, I'm just struck that he knows our country much better than we know him. I think this is a continuing problem of the United States where no political benefit accrues to anybody through learning, A, a foreign language. Remember, poor John Kerry was attacked for speaking French, for God's sake. What would it be like if you had an aspirant for the presidency of the United States who spoke Chinese? Uh, this would be regarded as an un-American activity by many. Whereas the truth is, many in the Chinese leadership and the generation coming up after Xi Jinping uh, will be bilingual, will know Chinese and English, have a deep familiarity with the United States. And even those who do not have um, English as a second language, the amount of analytical effort the Chinese put into understanding America, understanding American politics, understanding the way the United States leadership thinks, 
by and large, is vastly in excess of what Americans do in relation to understanding their number one global strategic competitor, namely the People's Republic of China. Speak of what sounds like a main point in your rundown on Xi Jinping. Already he has acquired the stature in China and the world beyond Mao. Where's to go from there? What's the Xi Jinping mark going to be? Well, as I deduce it through reading uh, Chinese ideological documents, Chinese political documents, the Chinese official press, and the emerging, if you like, um, personality cult of Xi Jinping, it's probably got two or three benchmarks to it. Uh, One, he wishes to leave a mark on history as the person who completed the Chinese revolution, and that means the reabsorption of Taiwan within Chinese sovereignty. Mao was not able to achieve that in 49 or in subsequent attempts. Xi Jinping sees himself, in my judgment, as the man of history who is um, best able to do that. I think the second thing, looking at uh, what he seeks to achieve domestically, is to reintroduce ideological rigour back into the Chinese Communist Party. He has identified the party as having become ideologically soft under Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao over the last 35 years. And therefore, he has sought to rebirth Marxism-Leninism within the Chinese Communist Party. And therefore, he would want to be seen in history as the person like Mao who adhered to ideological rigour within the party system. Can I just say that sounds odd in our picture of a China that is not even aspiring toward human equality anymore? Well, the interesting thing, if you trace the internal ideological documents under Xi Jinping, in the last couple of years, he's announced for the first time an ideological framework for restoring equality in China. It's called the Common Prosperity Principle. The Chinese word for it is Gong Tong Fu Yu. And this uh, was first announced uh, by and large in 2020, 2021. Uh, It's been enormously controversial within China itself because it's seen as code language for peeling back the wealth accumulation of China's leading entrepreneurial class. And as a result, um, has been one of those factors which has caused many Chinese entrepreneurial leaders to wonder whether they should continue investing in the country. So on the question of ideological leadership and Marxism-Leninism, when I said before that Xi Jinping has sought to take both the party and the economy back towards the left within the Chinese spectrum. That is precisely what he is seeking to do. It's not just the restoration of the name of ideological rigour for the party. It is the substance of the ideological rigour in terms of a much more powerful Leninist party and with a much more state-controlled Chinese economy. That would be his second major legacy. You call him, in his perspective, Marxist nationalist capitalism, or Marxist nationalism. How do those two words work together? Yeah, it's a, if you like, an innovative phrase of mine because they don't readily come together. If you look at Marxism-Leninism in its pure theoretical form, it's an internationalist ideology, which is revolution at home, revolution abroad, and the triumph of progressive forces over reactionary forces, uh, the stuff which the Soviets uh, had spoken of since the beginning of the Bolshevik Revolution and from before. And therefore, ultimately, within the theoretical framework, that internationalism triumphed over petty nationalisms. 
However, mm. in the Chinese practice of Marxism and Leninism, it has always been to some extent nationalist, to wit uh, the split between the Chinese and the Russians in the Sino-Soviet split, not just over ideological questions, but also over nationalist questions of who would lead the international communist movement at the time. In the case of Xi Jinping, what I identify is a much more strident Chinese nationalism than was evident under his mm. predecessors, however. So when I use the term Marxist nationalist, I do so in this sense. Marxist in the sense that he has rehabilitated a Marxist-Leninist party and all of its powers over individuals and over corporations and over NGOs. And Marxist in the sense of adjusting the centre of gravity of Chinese economic policy. Nationalist, however, is the, um, if you like, is the noun for which Marxist is the adjective in the sense that his animating and unifying call for the Chinese party, people and state is to restore China's nationalist vision of being the major power in the world. The Chinese phrase for it is which is the great renaissance or rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And this is this galvanizing pan-national vision that he has. Put the two together, what do they mean? A more equal distribution of wealth within the Chinese system, engineered through a more powerful Chinese Communist Party, both underpinning, however, an even more powerful Chinese state in which all Chinese should have enormous pride. That, I think, is why I use the term Marxist nationalism. Kevin Rudd, you call it the avoidable war. What's the real chance of avoiding it? It's a real prospect. I don't believe that um, crisis, conflict and war between China and the United States is inevitable. At this stage, I don't even think it is probable, but I'm worried about the extent to which it's becoming highly possible in the language being used both in Beijing and Washington and in the preparations being made. And I'm enough of a student of political history and international relations history, particularly through utterly avoidable wars like the First World War, to understand that when diplomacy fails, it can fail big time with disastrous consequences for us all. So I believe this war is entirely avoidable. But to do so, we need to take diplomatic and political steps in both capitals to construct some guardrails, to construct some rules of the road, rather than just leaving it to day-to-day -day strategic and political chance. Kevin Rudd, the book is remarkable, and your conversation is, is a whole lot of fun, too. Thank you. Now, good to be with you on the program, and good to speak to the good burgers of Boston and beyond. Our guest, Paul here spent most of a professional lifetime in the secret society of U.S. intelligence officers studying China for our CIA. Nowadays, he's a fellow at the Center for the National Interest, and he speaks of China as a challenge, but not a threat. I'm asking him to pinpoint how President Nixon's breakout visit with Mao in Beijing 50 years ago turned to breakdown inside the U.S. establishment. Well, I think that's been developing for quite a time. It certainly has become more antagonistic and more hostile and more adversarial over the last five or ten years. I would attribute that in part, frankly, to the very kind of dualistic, ideological way in which the Trump administration framed the U.S.-China hmm. competition. But actually, I think the Biden administration has inherited not quite the level of rhetoric, but the same kind of intellectual characterization, particularly when Biden talks about the U.S.-China competition being a struggle between autocracy and democracy. 
And I think that was reflected in Blinken's speech last week when he talked about China's global ambitions. It's based certainly on an accurate assessment that we face a profound strategic challenge from China. Even given that, it nonetheless exaggerates and mischaracterizes the nature and the scope of that challenge. I'm interested in the turn after the great Nixon breakthrough. When did the Nixon-Mao notion of a giant cooperative exercise go sour? I mean, I think there was a general consensus and a bipartisan consensus in, in Washington over the course of the 80s and 90s that uh, China was moving in a reformist direction under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping. And that was the foundation for, and really Nixon established the foundation for this, for the engagement process between the United States and China. I think it started to go sour after the Cold War ended and the common enemy of the Soviet Union went away. Uh, and then the underlying inconsistencies and incompatibilities between the U.S. and Chinese systems came to the fore. That's where the relationship became more confrontational. You know, if you listen to the commentary, especially over the last decade, there's been this ongoing debate about whether engagement essentially has proven a failure because it was based on an invalid assumption that it would lead to the liberalization and the democratization of China. And that's clearly what we have not seen. That's one of the prevailing views in Washington now, that engagement failed, we need to adopt a much more confrontational approach to China because they're not going to do what we want them to do. They're not going to evolve in the directions that we thought. Do we really believe that that is a threat or even a concern to us? It has not become a democracy, obviously. On the other hand, millions and millions of people have a much better life. They like their government better than Americans like theirs. Who are we to, to call that a failure? It wasn't that China was a failure, it was that our expectations for political evolution in China were a failure. What has evolved over the last 20 years, 25 years, is really that rather than liberalizing and democratizing, China has simply become much more materially competitive internationally relative to the United States. Mm -hmm. In the wake of the global financial crisis of 2008, 9, 10, U.S. economic competitiveness started to lag, whereas China recovered from that more quickly and more successfully than we did. And I think that has fueled the perception of an inexorable challenge from China. And I think it is an inexorable challenge from China yep. economically, but I think it's led in turn to an overly alarmist characterization of the nature of that threat and challenge by equating it with the ideological competition between the two sides. A challenge for sure, but then a threat? Confrontation? Where are we? I like to make the distinction between challenge and threat. A challenge does not necessarily constitute a threat. That's perhaps my primary critique of the way that the policy community has framed the China challenge. I think it's not necessarily a threat because it's not necessarily existential. Yes, there's an ideological competition between China and the United States because they have a, an authoritarian socialist system, which they think is superior to ours, or at least is better equipped for their governance than our system is. So I think that does constitute an ideological competition and a challenge. But it's not a threat because I don't think the Chinese are trying to undermine or destroy our system. I think the Chinese are genuinely interested in peaceful coexistence between the two systems. If we're willing to live with the coexistence of an authoritarian <laughs> communist socialist state, takes two to tango, but it takes two also to figure out this relationship. How do you explain the American fixation on being number one and the underlying assumption, sort of, that there can't be two powers of this size living happily on one planet? 
Well, the American fixation with being number one, if we want to characterize it that way, is a product of the fact that we have been for 75 years. <laughs> and in fact, I think that is the primary challenge we face. The, the, the mere fact that China aspires to have global influence and wealth and power that even rivals ours as a peer competitor is something we're not comfortable with. We've never gotten used to that. The Soviet Union could never muster the kinds of material power against us that the Chinese can. I think it's important to acknowledge, and a lot of people disagree with me on this, that one of the other big differences between the Soviet Union and China is that I don't think the Chinese leadership subscribes to the view that the Soviet leadership did, which was that capitalism and communism could not coexist peacefully. Right. The fact that socialism with Chinese characteristics largely adopts many elements of capitalism to me is prima facie evidence that they believe in the coexistence of the two systems. We're still the most powerful and wealthy country in the world, but because of our domestic political dysfunction and polarization of policymaking and some of our economic problems, we're not as competitive, frankly, as we were a generation ago. Whereas the Chinese are, they have their act together. We don't like that act. That's the basis, I think, for the U.S. discomfort with the potential loss of its number one position. We have characterized the Chinese objective as that of supplanting the United States as number one. And I'm not convinced that that is their objective. The Chinese talk all the time about a multipolar world, uh, about sharing power, not about being the leading power in a Sinocentric world, but about being one of the leading powers. That poses a challenge to us because we're not used to sharing global leadership with a peer competitor. The more you say, Paul, it strikes me that the problem in a large measure is us, but it's also in the phrasing. Our relationship with China is said now to be about winning the 21st century, as if only one side could win. It seems to me that the winners of the 21st century are going to be the people who learn to adjust or control climate change. And obviously, we've got to do that as one people and one planet. And the first thought would be, why aren't we doing it with China? You're absolutely right. If there is an existential threat to the existence of either country, it's that. It's not each other. No one's going to win the 21st century unless we do it collaboratively. And I think the Chinese are generally receptive to that. I mean, there's any number of other issues, too. I mean, obviously, in the, in the wake of this still unfolding pandemic, hmm. global health, the global economy, any number of transnational issues where we actually share, we have mutual interests with the Chinese. The word from the Biden administration about the time we're in is containing or constraining China. How would you have amended that? As I said before, I think that China is trying to maximize its power relative to ours, and we need to maximize our power and influence and wealth relative to theirs. They are not trying to undermine the American system. They're not trying to impose socialism on other countries. They're not trying to establish a Sinocentric world order to replace the one that we played a major role in formulating in the wake of World War II. Hmm. Uh, it's just not as existential absolutist is a threat. It's just a highly, highly competitive challenger that I think genuinely would be receptive to peaceful coexistence and sharing global leadership. We should not be competing on the basis of a judgment that the Chinese have abandoned peaceful coexistence or have made it impossible. Paul here, it's a fascinating glimpse you've given us into the policy community, and thank you for sharing it. Thank you for the opportunity. Coming up, Secretary Blinken, in his own words, this is open source. 
I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source, taking impressions of the Biden reset of relations with China. Here's a taste of Secretary of State Antony Blinken's speech in the last week of May at George Washington University. It's the tone, as well as the text, that can be taken as ominous, but we can all listen and judge for ourselves. Here's a key passage after Secretary Blinken underlined the clear and present threat posed in Ukraine by Vladimir Putin, a threat to basic principles of sovereignty and territorial integrity. Even as President Putin's war continues, we will remain focused on the most serious long-term challenge to the international order, and that's posed by the People's Republic of China. China is the only country with both the intent to reshape the international order and increasingly the economic, diplomatic, military, and technological power to do it. Beijing's vision would move us away from the universal values that have sustained so much of the world's progress over the past 75 years. China is also integral to the global economy and to our ability to solve challenges from climate to COVID. But simply, the United States and China have to deal with each other for the foreseeable future. That's why this is one of the most complex and consequential relationships of any that we have in the world today. We're back with David Kang, professor of international relations at USC and non-resident fellow with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. I'm not alone among American citizens who are just waking up to this air of hostility with China. What are the alternatives and why is the consensus in the policy class of hostility toward China and it's going to get worse, this winning the 21st century business? Where did that come from, David Kang? Yeah. Now, I'm not a deeply knowledgeable about D.C., but I have a couple ideas. You, you, you may see it more clearly from afar. Go ahead. <laughs> well, it's one reason I like being outside. But like, um, you know, and I'm always I'm always willing to speculate. But I, I think there's a couple things. And one is this. This I have found very interesting, which is that the United States, we we, we must. It is innate in the last half century or, or maybe century that we talk about ourselves as the world leader. It is, it is just, take, we just say this stuff. It's taken for granted. We must lead. Everyone wants us to lead. We're the indisp indispensable nation, right? It's intellectually inconceivable now that you say, remember how much Obama got, got just abused, heaped with abuse for saying something like we might lead from behind or something like that? He's still talking about leading. <laughs> but if we're not marching out front, you know, waving our flag, people say, what are you, Right. So it is almost inconceivable that we don't lead. And there is really only one country that is in a pot potential position to ever do anything about that, and that's China. As much as we may have worried about Japan or Russia or something, these are countries that are not realistically going to be massively consequential across all domains, military, economic, social, etc., diplomatic. Um, what's interesting about that is so if you're in D.C., you can't be taken seriously if you say something like, well, we don't have to be the leader. I mean, you just literally will not be taken. People will roll their eyes. The same way you cannot say, maybe we don't need military bases everywhere. People will just roll their eyes. What are you talking about? We're America. And so I think there is an element to the American worldview. The other part of that is that for some reason over the last 20, 30, 40 years, 
the United States foreign policy establishment begins with military force. Almost everything is viewed through a military lens. Economics and diplomacy are considered to be, at best, distant second choices. And so we view everything through a military lens. And what's interesting is if you read the top thinkers in the uh, Biden administration, Rush Doshi, who uh, wrote a book about China, Kurt Campbell, the challenge they talk about from China is an economic one. They say, if we lose our leadership position, China may then begin to change the rules of the game. They may be able to run the economic institutions to their own benefit and to our detriment. These are economic issues, which to me don't require a military solution. They require an economic solution. We should have something more than an empty 12-paragraph Indo-Pacific economic framework. But instead, we're talking about war and increasing military spending and militarizing even more parts of the Pacific and things that don't seem, that the solution does not seem aimed at the actual problem. Aren't you underestimating the obvious lessons of the day that invasions don't work, war doesn't work, didn't work for us in Afghanistan, and it is not working for Putin in Ukraine either? We're all adjusting somehow to a fundamentally different question about what is effective, what would work. I, I, I think that's a great uh, Lesson, I think that's a sort of general lesson. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm wondering, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to apply it to East Asia because it's not like countries have invaded each other there recently. But no, but even about the American role. I mean, this, this might sort of reinforce, but I don't see a lot of imminent invasions. I don't see that on the horizon in East Asia. I don't see where that's coming from. Nobody thinks China wants to invade Japan or the Philippines, or Korea, or Vietnam. Nobody thinks that, right? <laughs> so we're not worried about that. And as I said, the one area that we do think that violence might happen with China is Taiwan. And we know very well what the, uh, what the contours of that are. That is a well-understood issue. David King, how would we relearn our place, our role, our future with China? Yeah. You know, the United States still remains a hugely uh, welcoming, attractive you know, a country, a beacon in many ways, despite all of our problems. In fact, one of the, one of the top Chinese thinkers, uh, IR professor uh, Wang Jixi, just came out with, a, with an interview um, in China, and he said, uh, you, you probably saw that, right, where he said, The American century will be over when, when the visa lines thin out. All over the world. People exactly. Want to be here. When people stop lining up outside American consulates to get a visa. It's absolutely true, right? People still want to come here, right? It's still viewed as a place where there's more freedoms in many ways, where, where there's more opportunity um, and a great place to, to live and learn, right? There are, still, there are many ways in which the United States is going to be strong and rich and safe and powerful, whether we're number one or not, to me, is totally immaterial to what, what an, a good, uh, you know, a strong, um, positive role for the United States in the world is. And everyone around the world thinks that, too. I mean, not everyone, but, you know, like, there are, that is widely viewed around the world as well. And so I don't think it's that hard to relearn, the, relearn that, that role, especially when you have things like the Singaporean prime minister um, saying 
China's been engaging the region systematically. He just did an interview with a Japanese newspaper a couple weeks ago, right? Uh, they're doing this. Singapore supports that, the Belt and Road Initiative. We're a member of the group of friends. We think this is positive. It's better for China's prospering and engaged in the region than to be operating on its own. And I think we overlook the amount of acceptance of a Chinese role and what China is doing. Simply to view it through a lens of a, a competition between two countries vying for the top of the, the food chain. Especially when one, one thing I'll point out, you know, there are there, the, the, the reach to find Chinese claims that they want to replace the United States. Uh, it's very hard to find these claims. People will say, oh, well, in 2013, they mentioned something about, you know, reclaiming their place. Overwhelmingly, Xi Jinping and the top CCP leadership, they talk about, uh, and we laugh about this, it's a joke, right? You know, capitalism with Chinese characteristics. This is about China. It's not about exporting it. This is a Chinese focus. It's on themselves, right? They talk about a multipolar world. They don't talk about them replacing the U.S. as the unipole. They talk about a multipolar world, which in reality it is becoming. <laughs> A lot of what we are worried about with China is really more a reflection of our own fears than anything that China is really doing. So the moral is, get some more sleep, America. Cool your jets. And were you on the verge of saying we also still play great basketball? <laughs> our soccer team's getting a lot better. But I would say, here, here's where I would agree with the Blinken, uh, the Blinken speech or the, or the, um, the IPEF, you know, the, the Pacific Framework. There is a real need for the United States to focus on itself to focus on the challenges that we have, either the, obviously the domestic, deeply divided domestic politics, but the, the economy, as we all know, the richer getting richer, the poor falling behind, infrastructure, pollution, climate change. These are things the United States is going to have to do no matter what and are an input to national power abroad. If we don't take care of these things now, we're probably going to harm ourselves internationally. So there, I, I totally agree with what the Biden administration is focused on, investing in ourselves first. Maybe the famous blob, the policy community, is just behind the times, David. You know, I think there's an element of that. And again, I don't want to be too critical because I know many people work very hard to keep up to date with what's going on. But I think there are two issues there. One reason the blob behaves the way the blob does is because they're focused on what's going on in D.C., first and foremost. So if you want to get an appointment, if you want to get a promotion, if you want to get a position in, in the White House, what matters far more than, you know, they don't do a national search or an international search for the most qualified China expert. When one team wins, they look around to their team and find out who's there, who's better than anyone else, uh, and that's how you move up. So there is an element of actual sort of qualifications, but it's also very much focused on how you work, what's going on in DC. And the second thing, of course, is, let's say, you know, you go out there and you spend a couple years in China um, and you know it very well. Well, the region continues to change in ways that are unbelievable. This is not a, you know, steady state area at all. As we know, China's built like 22,000 kilometers of high-speed rail in the last like 15 years. If you were there in the mid-2000s, mm. you had zero miles of high-speed rail in China. So the region changes unbelievably quickly. 
Uh, and it's still changing. It's still the first generation of Chinese to actually grow up under capitalism. So that country is changing. And so to stay up to date on a China or a Korea, which is only a generation ahead, or Indonesia or anywhere else, takes tremendous amount of effort. And so the lessons learned about what a China or a Korea or Vietnam is like 20 years ago is not the same as the, where the, those countries are today. And so it just requires an awful lot of effort. One of the things we're all learning is that China plans its political relationships around trade and economics. The United States tends to make its friends through its military power and its alliances. What do we have to learn, or maybe have to learn, from China about putting trade first and production and economics? The thought occurs to me, right? Like, we look at Belt and Road Initiative or Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank as sort of Chinese ploys to take over the world. Maybe. But much more obviously, these are economic strategies that are tying China more and more, not only into the region, into the world. And as you pointed out, in many ways, maybe you know, if the lesson from Russia, Ukraine is, boy, actual invasions are horrifically wasteful and often don't work. Maybe we are spending too much time on our military and not nearly enough time on our economic and diplomatic relations. And that, I think, is a lesson uh, for, for all American you know, pre administrations going forward is we really do not need to always lead with our chin and our military, our chin jutting out and our military first. Apply that in Asia today. We have zero economic strategies, and Biden is only now even considering reducing some of the Trump tariffs on Chinese trade. I literally looked up Chinese trade this morning, and in the first three months of 2022, January to March, our uh, trade deficit with China compared to the first three months of 2021 is up by about 70%, right? It was, wow. Uh, and there was a temporary drop during pandemic and the Trump uh, tariffs. But we, the trade deficit has now widened last year, 2021, compared to 2020, compared to 2019. So the deficit is continuing to go up. But we still keep these tariffs on, which measurably hurt Americans because the prices are higher. The companies literally just pass the, the tariff on to the United States cons consumer. And we have zero response to this because we're somehow competing with China and punishing them. I think this is a fundamentally wrongheaded strategy for the United States. Instead, we get empty, empty IPEF claims and a total focus on militarizing the entire region and preparing for some kind of war, uh, which I can't conceivably think how it's actually going to start. It takes me back to the question that I knew I couldn't ask, which was, we began this whole thing after the Blinken speech asking, when did we decide that we had to go to war with China? Yeah, yeah, right. But you hear this more and more, and you hear it over things like the South China Seas. The South China Seas, there are maritime disputes. It's not a Chinese dispute. Every country in the region is involved in these disputes, and nobody has resolved them. It's not like everybody else resolved these maritime disputes. Uninhabited rocks in the middle of the ocean. Are we really? And this is, this is a rhetorical question, but it's actually a genuine question. Hmm. Are we going to fight China over uninhabited rocks that aren't even ours? They're not even our claims? But that's the kind of rhetoric you start hearing in D.C. They're militarizing the islands. We have to respond. We need to do freedom of navigation and flybys and everything else. 
And I really wonder, is that really, are we really going to fight China over that? They're not even our claims. That's a fascinating example of the way the human mind, or maybe just the American mind in particular, uh, chooses things to focus on. No, we won't, we won't realign our production plans. We have to figure out how to fight over barren rocks in the, in the ocean. Yeah. Sounds like a, a joke. It sounds like we have our priorities wrong. What should we fight about? What is worth fighting about, right? National survival, absolutely. If anyone actually thought China wanted to invade and conquer the United States, of course, just like Ukraine, we would go down swinging, of course. Maybe fighting over our, for our allies. What we're find, Here's a lesson the United States is learning about from the Ukraine-Russia war. We're very cautious about getting involved in other people's wars, especially against a nuclear-armed adversary. But we would probably defend, certainly defend South Korea if North Korea invaded, or Japan. But other than that, is it worth fighting over? Taiwan, probably, right? Depending on the situation in Taiwan. But other than that, you know, national survival, yeah, but other things, I'm not sure it's worth fighting over. David Kang, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, too, to Kevin Rudd, former prime minister of Australia, current president of the Asia Society, and also to Paul Heer, fellow with the Center for the National Interest. You've just heard another installment of In Search of Monsters, our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, inspired by John Quincy Adams's admonition that America goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. We're rethinking empires across history, ours and others, perhaps to find a better way forward. For more on the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, visit their site at quincyinst.org and check out their online magazine, responsiblestatecraft.org, where you'll find articles like Daniel Larison's on the Blinken China policy speech, or George Beebe on Joe Biden's stray comments about Taiwan. Find it all at responsiblestatecraft.org. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman, with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a nonprofit collective of bold, intelligent, independent podcasts, including Subtitle, a show about languages and the people who speak them. In their latest episode, the story of Ukrainian, the language used to be denigrated as Little Russian. Now, rockers, rappers, even Ukraine's Russian speaking president have switched to Ukrainian. Speaking Ukrainian is an act of defiance in wartime. That's the latest subtitle. Listen wherever you go for podcasts or at hubspokeaudio.org.